after you know trying to figure out some technical things uh we're ready to go um as usual i am asking everyone to be a panelist uh we can't see uh rabbi silver today so it would be great if we could see you um and so i'll you know send out um a panelist invitation again um and uh you, if you accept, then we can see your faces and you can unmute to ask questions when we um, take a pause in the shear. Um, as well, any questions that you have um, in the meantime can be put into the chat here or on Facebook Live, and I'll make sure that they get to Rabbi Silver. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, sorry for the uh, technical problem with the picture. This particular computer has some issues with picture. I don't know what the issue is, but in any event, we we can hear each other. And I can see you. Um, all right. So we're, this week, I'd like to finish the Shimshon story. Um, Shimshon is the the classical nazir of the of the Tanakh. Shimshon clearly. When we get to the Mishnah stuff after Pesach, extremely interesting stuff. There, we'll see that Shimshon is quite marginalized by the Mishnah, and by extension by the Gemara, I think as well. The Gemara and the Mishnah certainly marginalize the Shimshon, whereas in the Tanakh, the Nazir is Shimshon. In fact, he's about the only, only one that's actually called the Nazir. Within the Bible, <laughs> and we see in the three remaining classes, there are three other characters who have some connection to the, to, to the idea of Nazirut. One obviously is Shmuel. In the very big first chapter of Shmuel, Shmuel's birth, when Hannah has uh, is praying, and she says, "If you give me a child, I will dedicate the child to your service." And then she says, lo no razor shall cut his hair." So the point is that she doesn't use the word Nazir. The picture came back. Your image is on the screen oh, now. It comes and goes. It's yeah, okay. oh, good. Okay, great. Um, good. It may disappear again. Who knows? Right. Any, but um, but the book of Shmuel never uses the word Nazir. But Morolo Yalel Rochelle, he can't cut his hair. We obviously think of that in terms of the Nazarite vow. And there it's interesting, he she dedicates him to God. I will deal with this uh, a little bit next week, and when we get to the Mishnah, we'll deal with it much more. Um, that's one person in the Bible you could say is a Nazir. Now, the second person, there it disappeared. The second person that's a Nazir, uh, at least not explicit, no, it's not mentioned that this person is a Nazir, but the Mishnah takes him as a Nazir, and that's Avshalom. So when we get to Avshalom, we'll discuss Avshalom, even though it's never mentioned that he's a Nazir. And he certainly doesn't appear to be holy unto God, certainly not as he develops in the book of Shmuel. But having said that, um, the Mishnah takes him not only as a Nazir, but as, in a certain sense, a paradigmatic Nazir. It's very striking. And then there's the third person who appears in two different books of the Bible. And he's very interesting. His name is Yonadav. Yonadav ben Rechav. He appears both in the book of Mulachim. And he appears prominently, uh, prominently appears in that whole section in the book of Yirmiyahu. Uh, Yonadav ben Rechav, or they're known the followers, his children and his family are called the Rechabites. And that's a whole other story. And there we know they don't drink wine. They don't do other things as well. So we'll get to that. So those are the other three Nazir characters, one might say, in the Bible. Shmuel, who uh, uh, sounds like a Nazir, at least as an aspect of Nazirut. Avshalom, whom the Gemara speaks of in terms of Nazirut, we'll talk about that. And then, of course, Yonadav ben Rechav. So the, the idea here of these sessions is to try to give a picture that emerges from the Bible about the Nazir. Now, there's one chapter in the Torah dedicated to the rules of the Nazir, which we began with, and we'll constantly be referencing that. But I did want to finish up uh, this week with Shimshon. And... Um, because he is called the Nazir. And he's actually called the Nazir. Um, Shimshon, of course, is different from the Nazir of the Torah in several ways. 
uh, I'll mention, uh, well, two or three ways. One is that he's a Nazir uh, before he's even born. He is a Nazir, the angel comes to his mother and says that you, that in utero already, he has to observe some of the laws of the Nazir. You're not, you shouldn't drink wine, you shouldn't eat things that are impure, literally, etc. For he shall be a Nazir from birth, from, from the womb, actually, until, and, and then she added later, until the day of his death. So it is to say, first of all, that uh, he's a Nazir his entire life, from beginning to end, which in the Chumash doesn't sound that way at all. In the Torah, it sounds like very much a Nazir is a temporary state. In the case of uh, Shimshon, it's not temporary, it's his entire life. The angel says from his birth, and the mother adds later until the day of his death, his entire life. And then there's another difference, critical difference, that in the case of the uh, Torah, it begins, a man or woman who takes upon himself, herself, the vow of the Nazarite. So the Nazarite of the Torah is the result of a vow that one takes. In the case of Shimshon, there is no vow. Not, not at all. In fact, it couldn't be a vow. He's a Nazir before he's born. So there's no vow. Uh, that's a very important distinction. And the third distinction between the Nazir of the Torah and Shimshon, which is rather critical, is that in the Nazir of the Torah, there are three main prohibitions, one of which is not to come into contact with any, with any, with any dead, with any corpses, even his own family. And in the case of Shimshon, though it never says explicitly that he touches corpses, but it's hard to imagine that he doesn't, given the fact that he's killing a lot of people. He kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of an ass. Uh, he kills 30 uh, people in Ashkelon after the uh, wedding party uh, gets his wife to find out his riddle. So presumably he's coming in contact with a lot of dead. And right there, there's a fundamental difference between Shimshon and the Nazir of the Torah. Nazir of the Torah, when the Nazir comes into contact with the dead, that yes, then the Nazir starts uh, all over again. You start all over again. But in the case of Shimshon, he's coming presumably in contact with the dead very often, and he's not starting all over again. He's a Nazir his entire life. And therefore, in all of those ways, the Nazirut of Shimshon is radically different from what the Torah says about the Nazir, which is probably one of the reasons that in the Mishnah, hope to get to that someday, in the Mishnah, we, um, he's very much marginalized. It's not really about Shimshon at all. And to the extent that the Mishnah speaks of Shimshon, actually, which is not in the tractate of Nazir, but in the tractate of Sota, it has a pretty negative take on Shimshon. So we'll get to those things later on. In any event, today we will hopefully finish the story of Shimshon. Now, let me just repeat the main point I was trying to make about Shimshon, and then we'll follow through with this today. The main point I made about Shimshon and about the Nazarite of the Bible in general is that in the Chumash, when the Chumash speaks about the Nazir, man or woman who makes the vow of the Nazarite, chapter six of Bamidbar, can't drink wine, can't come into contact with the dead, can cut hair, hair of his head at least, or her head. That actually, there are two ways to look at that. One way is to say, this is what a Nazir is. That's one way to look at it. But there's quite a different way to look at it, which is that this is not what a Nazir is. These are the, some of the restrictions of the Nazir. But the Nazir is not about, if I say, what is a Nazir? What is the idea of the Nazir? So an answer would not necessarily be, well, somebody who doesn't takes a vow not to cut hair, not to come into contact with the dead, not to drink wine, wine products. No, that's not what the Nazir is. Those are the restrictions placed upon the Nazir. But what is the Nazir? So that's a different question. I, I made a suggestion. It's a Nazir is somebody who has a very specific mission given to the Nazir by God, which may or may not coincide with the general behavior that, uh, that uh, Jews do. And I gave as an example for that, when the Torah speaks about kingship, Torah speaks about the king. When you come into the land, 
and you say, we want to have a king. Torah says in chapter 16 of Devarim, you come into the land, you say, I want a king. Like all the other nations. Says the Torah, you can have a king, one that God chooses. You can't place a foreigner. Then the Torah continues. But the king should not have too many wives. The king should not have too many horses. The king should not have too much money. The king should have the people back to, to, to Egypt. Then the Torah continues. And when the king assumes power, the king should write a Torah. And the Torah should be with the king. And the king should read it all the time to remember to observe the commandments of God. So the Torah says a lot about a king. But the Torah doesn't tell you what does the king do. These are, these are restrictions or obligations of the king, etc. But the Chumash never actually says, okay, what does the king do for a living? What, what is the job of the king? That the Torah does not say. Now, does the Torah assume that the reader knows it? That's a very important question. Who is the reader that the Torah is addressing? I call the, the, the implied reader. We speak of the implied author, that is the voice of the narrative person talking to us in the narrative. But a very important question is, what does the Torah assume about the reader? In other words, does the Torah assume that every reader reading the Torah, this book, knows what a Nazir is, has a pretty good sense of what a Nazir is? Torah doesn't bother telling you what the Nazir is. Torah is saying, you want a Nazir? Okay, we allow, we allow the Nazir on a temporary basis anyway. You can be a Nazir. But, uh, the Nazir has certain restrictions as a Nazirite. That's not a definition of what the Nazir is that comes along with Nazirut. So this second way of reading, which I believe is a good way to read, um, it begs the question as to what does the Nazir do? So my claim, and that's the whole point of these sessions, is that when we look at people that are called Nazirim, the main one is Shimshon, but then there's also the Joseph story. And Joseph is called a Nazir by by Yaakov, when, when Yaakov blesses uh, his children. And the tribe of Joseph is also, uh, the blessing uh, falls upon the head of Joseph, the Nazarite, the Zirechav, the one separated from his brethren. So if we think about Joseph and Shimshon, and we ask ourselves the question, what, what is a Nazir? We're looking for the common denominator of Joseph and Shimshon. And what, we, what we've suggested so far is the following that both Joseph and Shimshon have a particular mission, in some ways a similar mission, but Shimshon's mission is to fight God's wars and to defeat God's enemies, even though the Jewish people have no interest. They have absolutely no interest in fighting the Philistines, the Pushtim. In fact, when Shimshon, at one point, when the Philistines complained to the tribe of Judah, as we have seen, the tribe of Judah goes to Shimshon and says, what are you making trouble for? The Philistines are, are, our, are our rulers. Moshrim bana pushtim. We're going to hand you over. And Shimshon says, don't kill me. We're not going to kill you. We're going to tie you up. We'll get to this in a few minutes. We're going to tie you up. They tie him up. But of course, Shimshon, who has superhuman strength, breaks out of the bonds, picks up a lech elchi chamar, and he kills a thousand Philistines. So that's his mission. His mission is to fight the enemies of God who happen to be persecuting Israel, despite the fact that Israel doesn't care, but God cares. He's fighting God's war for God. It has the, the effect of helping Israel from Israel's enemy, but that's not his purpose, and that's not his mission. He, will, he does redeem <laughs> Israel indirectly, but that's not his mission. In the case of Joseph, Joseph has a mission. And the person who says that Joseph has a mission over and over and over again is Joseph. He says it to the brothers at least twice, namely, when the, he reveals his true identity, a neo-safe, and the brothers are shocked. And Joseph says, don't feel bad. Come, come, call. don't feel bad, says Joseph. Don't feel bad that you sold me into slavery. Don't, don't feel bad that you sold me or caused myself, perhaps. Don't feel bad about that. Because God has sent me to bring sustenance, to keep you alive. In other words, don't think of it in terms of a sale, says Joseph, that you sold me. Think of it in terms of a mission, that God sent me on my mission. And Joseph repeats that at the end of Breshit, the very end. 
when the brothers, after the death of Yaakov, thinks Joseph's going to kill them. And Joseph says, no, no. Joseph cries, I would never do that, he says. You thought evil, but God thought for good. You thought to do me harm, evil. Elohim But for God did it for God, God did it for the good. So that's very interesting in terms of, first of all, we can ask a question. Just recently, someone asked me this question. And I think in Israel, someone asked me, okay, they they thought evil and it turned out for good. How does it actually exonerate that? Because at the end of the day, they did they did think to do harm, to kill him, to sell him into slavery, etc. That's a very interesting question. But from Joseph's perspective, when Joseph sees this, which is a very interesting question in general, um, the fact that it, it's part of God's plan, so your thinking is actually not important to me, says Joseph, because I don't, I don't think in those terms. I'm, I'm seeing things only from the perspective of, of, uh, of uh, God's plan. So that is the, um, now, parallel, so each one has a mission. Joseph's mission, he thinks, from, he says it, his mission is to keep you and keep the and keep others alive. There's a bit of famine, and I'm going to be able to keep you alive. I'm going to feed you. That's what Joseph thinks for most of his life. But at the very end of the book of Breshit, the very end of the book, Joseph says to his brothers, I'm going to die here in Egypt, and I want you to swear to me. I impose upon you an oath that someday when God redeems us, and brings us back to the land of Avram, Yitzhak and Yaakov, that you will take my bones and bury me and bury me back, take them with you and bury me back in the land of Canaan. That's the last thing that Joseph says, which means that the end of Joseph's life and only at the end of his life, he comes to understand another point, which is that the mission was not just to feed you. That's what he thinks the mission is his whole life. But at the very end of his life, he comes to an understanding that he had another mission. He's part of God's other plan, which was fundamentally to enslave the Jewish people, Geirut, Avdut, and Inui, as part of the covenantal promise. That's the promise that God made to Avram. Your descendants will possess the land someday in return for slavery and suffering and uh, abuse, etc. So, and being a stranger, Geirut, Avdut, and Inui. And Joseph, at the end of his life, sees himself as part of that, because Joseph is the one who brings them down to Egypt. So whatever the mission is, there are really two missions, one which Joseph understands early on, and the latter mission, I claim, he understands at the end of his life and not before. But in each of those cases, a person with a mission. And then there's something else about Joseph and Shimshon, just to review what we had so far. This is a very critical point, and that is, that both in the case of Joseph and the case of Shimshon, there's something that's common to both of them. I call it secret knowledge. That Shimshon has a secret, and we'll get to this in a few minutes. The secret, he, he knows something that no one else knows, which is the source of his strength. He has been chosen by God before birth to the extent that when you read the Shimshon, the birth of Shimshon, there's even a kind of intimation that the true parent is not Manoach, but rather the angel, is a sense of it. I'm not saying actually that's what happens, but there's a sense that the, the writer wants us to think of it in terms of this is God's child. So, and this is a secret. And no one knows the secret. And he can't betray the secret. Shimshon and God are in a strange way, extraordinarily close. And if he, if he ever, he can't tell someone the secret because when you tell somebody your secrets, that, suge <laughs> that suggests a kind of intimacy. Shimshon can't be intimate with anybody. Certainly not with the Philistines, well, God's direct enemy, and not with the Jews either, because the Jews seem to have no interest in, 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 uh, in, in God's concerns. You know? Reminds me of what the Kutzka Rebbe is presumed to have said, whether he said it, I don't know. He says, we also, we pray to God all the time, God have mercy on us. Maybe we should tell the people, have some mercy on God. That's the Kutzka Rebbe's sharp comment. 
But the point is, the people have no mercy for God. God has God said, the Philistines were my enemy, are riding roughshod over these people that I identify with, and the people don't seem to care. They say to Shimshon, what are you making trouble for? I love Moshe and Pushtim. So there's a, Shimshon has a secret. He can't reveal the secret because that would be a problem. And we'll, and we'll get to it in a couple of minutes. He does reveal the secret to Delilah. He tells Delilah his secret. He wrestles with it, but he tells her the secret. And with Shimshon, just to review what we had so far, with Shimshon, it manifests, the idea of having secret knowledge that nobody else knows manifests itself in terms of riddles. Because on two different occasions, Shimshon is one who tells riddles. That's the first story of Shimshon. I have a riddle for the people. If you can tell me the answer to the riddle, I'll give you each one a coat, etc. And the riddle is the idea, I have some knowledge you don't have. In the case of Joseph, it's not riddles. In the case of Joseph, it is, first of all, dreams, which are central to the story. Joseph has a dream. He's a dreamer, and he's also an interpreter of dreams. So he has access to knowledge that nobody else has. It's what Paro says to Joseph at one point. Listen, when Joseph says, you better get a very smart person to run your affairs. God is telling you something. God's saying it's going to happen right away. The seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine. And Paro says to Joseph, well, if God tells you these things, who is wiser than Joseph? So Joseph has secret knowledge. And beyond secret knowledge, beyond the dream, beyond the interpretation of dreams, it's what he says to his brothers. namely. You saw things a certain way. You see history a certain way. You think you sold me into slavery. That was a terrible thing. But you don't really understand. You're looking at it from your perspective. But I look at it from God's perspective. From God's perspective, this is necessary and important. And you are simply part of God's plan. You're part of God's plan. So this is what's common to Joseph and to Shimshon. Shimshon is obviously a Nazir from birth. Joseph is not a technically a Nazir, but Joseph is, is called a Nazir twice in the Bible. And if we think of Nazir as one who's separate, because the word lehi Nazir means to separate, the story in which you see it clearly is when Joseph's brothers come down to Egypt the second time. And Joseph invites them to eat with Joseph and they're sitting together and the Torah says, and Joseph and the, his brothers and the Egyptians in Joseph's house are all eating the meal. And the Egyptians won't eat with Joseph and the brothers because they don't eat with the, the Hebrews. They have a separate diet. They don't eat what the Hebrews eat. Maybe they don't eat meat. And the brothers eat separately from Joseph. So they set three tables. One is for Joseph. One is for the Egyptians. One is for the brothers. And Joseph's in the middle. And of course, the brothers won't eat with him because he's the Egyptian viceroy. They don't know it's Joseph. And the Egyptians won't eat with Joseph or the brothers because they're Hebrews. And that sums it up. Who is Joseph? If he asks the Egyptians, he's a Jew. If he asks the Jews, he's an Egyptian. So he's, he, he's, he eats alone, he eats separately. And that is a very, uh, that image is very striking in terms of the Nazir. So that's what we've claimed till now. I want to finish up now with the second part of the Shimshon story. Before I finish up with the second part of the Shimshon story, does anybody have a comment or question about everything we've discussed till now? And we'll try to finish up the Shimshon story in the next 35 minutes or so. Yeah. So we see a lot of things through the prism of Tuma and Tara. So um, is there some notion that perhaps Shimshon in his capacity as some sort of Nazir, that um, he routes the Philistines, he kills lots of them, but um, the main issue with a Nazir would be not contracting ritual impurity through the corpse of somebody who is a UD. And the Philistines don't qualify for that, so that his activities, in fact, aren't in violation of that aspect of Nazirut. That is certainly a possibility, although in the Talmud, the Talmud never assumes that non-Jews cannot convey impurity. There is a debate in the Talmud whether a non-Jew conveys impurity. There are different modes of conveying impurity, just I'll answer very briefly. Um, maybe we get to the Mishnah Gemara piece of it, it's, I'll go more into detail, but in the 
In the Talmud, basically, a corpse conveys impurity. It's the highest level of conveying impurity. Uh, but there are different ways to convey impurity. One is to touch a corpse. One is to carry a corpse. That's called Maga and Masa. And that, according to the Talmud, applies to Jews and non-Jews alike. No difference. Then there's a third thing of not touching or carrying, but being in the same place, what the Talmud calls Ohel, being in the same tent, in the same space, or, or, or hovering above a corpse. And that's a dispute in the Talmud between two Tanaim as to whether non-Jews convey Tumat Ohel. But conveying Tumat by touching, the Talmud so he has no dispute about that. There's no difference. So therefore, from the Talmudic, I mean, you, you could be right, by the way, but I'm saying, but in terms of looking at it from the rabbinic perspective, that wouldn't solve the problem. The Rambam writes famously in the beginning of his Laws of Nazir that Shimshon's not really a Nazir like all the others because he came in contact with the dead, which means that he's really not a Nazir, not in, not, 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 not in the classic sense. We'll get back to that. But it's an interesting point you make about, you know, he kills people in war. He doesn't just come across a body. Uh, in the Torah's case, by the way, the Nazir, the Torah says, if the Nazir suddenly finds himself herself in the in, in together with the, with, with, with the corpse, in the Chumash's case, it's an accident. It's not a war. Shimshon doesn't kill people by accident. Shimshon sets out to kill. That's what, that's his mission. He's a killer. He's fighting wars of God. That's 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 the story of Shimshon. Um, but the case of the Chumash is not doesn't discuss war at all. Um, not in that passage, it says if someone dies accidentally, it could be a parent, could be a relative, could be someone you meet in the street, just to die suddenly. Yeah, so that would be from a rabbinic standpoint, that, that wouldn't be an issue. Okay, uh, anybody else? And we'll just continue now with, um, with Shimshon. Uh, okay, let me just say the following this, the, the Shimshon story uh, has chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16 of the book of Judges. And it can be neatly divided, those chapters can be neatly divided into two sections, very neatly. The first section ends in the end of chapter 15, because it ends with, um, I'll, I'll get back to that, but the last verse of chapter 15 is after Shimshon kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of the ass. And the last verse of chapter 15, by Yishpot at Yisrael bimei plishtim esrim shanah. By Yishpot can mean to judge, but in the case of Shimshon, he's hardly a judge. So here they translate, he led. He led Israel in the days of the Philistines for 20 years. Sounds like the story's over. He, he does these enormous feats of, of, of strength. He kills many Philistines. And the last verse of chapter 15, and he judged Israel for 20 years. But that's not where the story ends. That's part one. But part two has two stories. The first is the uh, prostitute of Azza. That's the first few verses of chapter 16. And the rest of chapter 16, beginning in verse number four, is about his Shimshon and his wife Delilah, the capture and blinding of Shimshon, and ultimately how Shimshon in his death kills many Philistines. And the last verse of chapter 16, which is the last verse of the Shimshon story, which is chapter 16, verse 31, his brothers, uh, his, the house of his father, came, <coughs> they picked him up, and they buried him between Sarah and Eshtaol, in the father, in the grave of his father Manoach, and the last words, and he had judged or led Israel for 20 years, which is identical to the verse at the end of the previous chapter. So you see, it's, the story is broken up into two parts, and each part ends exactly the same way. This is after his death, and his father's household comes and buries him back in his father's tomb. By the way, they're all, that's another link to the Joseph narrative, by the way. Because in the Joseph story, Joseph is basically separated from the family from age 17 on. Basically, his entire life, uh, except for the last 17 years, he lives alone in the land of Egypt. And all the uh, story of Joseph, the, many, the amazing story of Joseph. But he's totally separate. But then at the very end of his life, he tells the brothers, 
I'm going to die, but someday you're going to take my, my, my corpse, my bones back with you and bury me back in the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So in the case of Joseph, one might say the ultimate reconnecting of Joseph to his brothers and to, and to Israel takes place after his death when he instructs his family that someday you will take my, uh, my bones, he says, and take them back to the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So one might say that in the case of Joseph, the Nazarite Joseph, he is to be reunited with his brethren after his death. And we have this with Shimshon as well. During his life, he's in Azir, even before he's born. But the, the, the sense over here that it was after he dies, after his death, he's brought back and buried in the tomb of his father, Manoach, between Sarah and Eshtaol. So in a certain sense, he is part of Israel. Uh, even though his entire life, in the case of Shimshon, is totally separate, but he is after death reunited with his, with the, with his family. Another link to the Joseph story. Okay, now let's take a look at Shimshon and Duli, and we'll see how far we can get with this. Um, this is chapter 16, verse number four. After this, he fell in love by Yahav. He loved a woman in Wadi Sore named Delilah. Now, before we get to the story of Samson and Delilah, uh, first I pointed out, and this is a very important point for the story, that here and only here do we have the verb to love by Yahav. In the earliest story, when he meets the, his first wife, Woman of Timna, it's it's the, the book says, Shimshon says, I want to marry this woman, he Yashra Bienai. So I drew a contrast between Yashar Bienai, which I translate suitable for me or useful to me. She she suits my purposes, because Shimshon's purpose is to kill Philistines, but not as an advocate of the Jews. He's going to kill the Philistines ostensibly. He's an advocate of God, but he's going to kill the Philistines because of some personal, some personal issue he has with the Philistines. In order to do that, he has to infiltrate into Philistine society, and he does so by virtue of marrying the Philistine woman. He then is going to kill 30 Philistines to pay back the, on the, on the, the riddle that he has. He's going to do that. And then when he comes back to get his wife later, and if her father is already given away to somebody else, he storms away in anger. The Philistines then kill his former father-in-law and former wife, and then he avenges them. So the point is he's using them. He uses the, the, the first wife and the father-in-law as a pretext to kill Philistines. Never says he loves her. But over here, uh, I want to say one small detail about this woman before we know how she behaves. And that is where she's from. Nachal, she's from Nachal Sorek. Now, I don't know where Nachal Sorek is. So there are many people in Israel who can tell you exactly where Nachal Sorek is. But here's what I do know. I know something about the word Sorek. And the word Sorek comes up, actually, in the book of Breshit. And I'll read it to you. It's when Jacob blesses his children. And in particular, two of the children get a big blessing. Long blessing, and one of them is Judah. The blessing of Yehuda, which is chapter 49 of Breshit, beginning in verse number 8, verse 9, verse 10, then verse 11. Judah gets five verses. I'll read you verse number 4 of Judah's blessing. Osri la gefen iro, ka beni atono, ki beis bayayin levusho, uvedam anovim suto. Difficult Hebrew. I'll read the JPS translation. It's as good as any. He tethers his ass to a vine, to a geffen. His ass is full to a choice vine. Soreka is a choice vine. Geffen is a vine. Soreka is a choice vine. He based by Yayan of the He washes his clothing in wine. Uvedama novim suto, his robe in blood of grapes. So the verse about Judah, four pieces to the verse, each one of them mentions wine. 
grapes and wine. And the second of them, the choice wine, the choice grape, is so reik, so cut. So now, Shimshon, who was forbidden to drink wine, can't drink wine. That we know. And whom, whom does he marry? He marries a woman from Nachal Sorek. Now that's that's Nachal Sorek. So already the, the text is setting up a problem over here. He's, he's in love with Mrs. Vine. But that's the one thing he's forbidden. Can't you can't drink the you can't cut your hair and you can't get involved with the with, with, with wine or wine products. It's in the Chumash as well. Now her name is Delila, and the question is, what does Delila mean? So names have meanings. I would say two things about Delilah. The word Dao, by the way, the word Dao, which means a poor person or a weak person. To be a Dao is a weak person. Ready in contrast to Shimshon, who's obviously of superhuman strength. And then within the name Delilah, it's hard to miss it, is the word, if you take out the Dao, it Lamed Yud Lamed He is Lila, is darkness. And there's something interesting about Shimshon. That Shimshon, the name Shimshon, was comes to mind is the name Shemesh, is the, the idea of Shemesh, the idea of light, the idea of fire. That is Shimshon. So one might say that Delila, her role will be to sort of extinguish the light, darkness. So it's the brightness marrying darkness. It's the nausea marrying Mrs. Vine. In short, before you even read about this woman, we have a distinct impression they may be and the big problem is he loves her. He doesn't simply use her, but what he sees in her, we'll never know. But the text often tells us nothing about Shimshon. We can imagine somebody who lives a fully lonely existence. There's a tragic element here. He lives a very, very lonely existence. And now he falls in love with this particular woman. Her name is Deliva. So now we'll see the story. So now, beginning in verse number five, the Philistines want to understand, they understand Shimshon is superhuman, superhuman strength. Where is this coming from? So they go to Mrs. Shimshon, Delilah, says coax him, pati means to seduce, literally seduce. And by the way, the idea of seduce, seduce him is what the Philistines said to Shimshon to Shimshon's wife in the first story, the woman of Timnah, when they couldn't figure out the riddle. We want you to figure out, figure out, coax him, seduce him, get the riddle from him. What do, why do you invite us to your wedding party? To make us poor? So you have to do that, and they threaten her. Now we have to see here that it's not so much a threat as a bribe. We want to understand how we can overpower him, make him helpless. And we'll give each one of you, each of us will give you 1,100 kesef. Let's leave that number out, which is an interesting number. 1,100 shekels of silver. Let's leave that out for now. But the point is, she is to pati, to seduce or to coax him. In other words, what's interesting is, what the Philistines understand is that to fight him head on is not possible. You can't defeat him head on. He's, he's going to overpower any force that comes against him. But the way to defeat him is to, is to seduce him to his, 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 his weakness. He has a weakness for his wife. He loves her. That's a problem in the case of Shimshon. Right. So now we have the attempt by Delilah to seduce him. Which, take, which has four different stages to it. So we won't get into all the details of it, but it's interesting there are four stages and there's something to be said for the four stages. So Delila goes to Shimshon in the next verse, and she says, uh, tell me, she says in verse number six, from where is your great strength? What makes you so strong? How could you be tied up and made, and made helpless? I mean, she doesn't leave that much to his imagination over here. How could we tie you up and make you helpless? So Shimshon answers her. He says, listen, he says, if you tie me up with seven fresh tarim, lachim, cords, sinews, I don't know, sinews, with, with ones that are damp and not yet dried out, then the I will become ill or, or weak and 
and, and, and I lose my supernatural strength. I'd be anybody else. And then I would be able to be overcome. So if you tie me up with these with these strings, tendons literally that are that are and never never been dried out. That's the first thing he says. So then what does she do? She does this. This is in verse number. She ties them up with the strings. Um, the Philistines are waiting in the next room and uh, waiting to ambush him and to capture him. And she screams, Philistines upon you, Shimshon. But he breaks out of these, out of these, out of these strands. He breaks up the tendons apart. And so he didn't tell her the truth. He doesn't tell her the truth. So then she persists in verse number 10. She says, what are you mocking me for? Why do you lie to me? It's, why do you lie to me? What kind of relationship can you based on lack of trust, you know? I told you have to tell me how you could be tied up. Notice, by the way, an important point, to be bound up, to be tied up. Remember that when the tribe of Judah came to Shimshon and said, what do you make trouble for? Shimshon says, don't kill me. We're not going to kill you. We're going to tie you up. They tie him up. He's a sore. He's a sore both in by the Philistines. He's a sore both by the Jews. It reminds us of Joseph. Joseph was thrown into the pit by his brothers in chapter 37. And Joseph is thrown into the pit, into the bar in chapter 40. Joseph said I'm a, to the butler, I'm an innocent guy. I have a stone from the land of the Hebrews. And here also I did nothing that they threw me into the pit. That is to say, they threw me into the pit back there and they threw me into the pit over here. My brothers, the Jews threw me into the pit and the, the, Egyptians, and the Egyptians threw me into the pit. And the pit is also called Beta Asurim, the house of those that are bound up or tied up. Joseph calls it a bar or Beta Soar. But it's also Beta Asurim. So we have another parallel between the Nazir of Shimshon, the Zirat of Shimshon, and of course, Joseph. So now he says something different. Okay, I didn't tell you the truth the first time. And in verse 11, if you tie me up with new ropes of which no, have never been used before. It strikes me, he's not telling you the truth, but there's something about the statement which is, which is not true, but there's something about it that reminds us a bit of Shimshon. The idea that ropes that have never been used for anything else, which reminds us of Shimshon, because Shimshon is exactly the Nazarite who doesn't take a vow. He's born a Nazarite. His mission is prior to birth. So he's sort of dedicated to God in a, in a, in a way that no one else is dedicated. Moshe, that's not the story of Moshe. Moshe grows up. Moshe's raised by Pharaoh's daughter. Moshe goes out. Moshe sees. Moshe makes decisions. Moshe chooses to, to lead the Jews, etc. That's not the case of Shimshon. Shimshon is before he's born. So this idea of in other words, my point is, he's not telling you the truth, but he's getting closer to telling you the truth. And the point that I think what the what this story wants to tell us is that he wants to present us with Shimshon is Shimshon is someone who's struggling with, with this problem. Love on one side of it, though for the life of us, we don't know why he loves her, what she has to commend her, who knows. On the other hand, his 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 promise by by implicit promise to God of, of maintaining a certain connection, a certain trust. I'll come back to that in a few minutes as well. About Shimshon's promise or, or trust. So meanwhile, same business again. She ties her up, but he breaks out of it very simply in verse number twelve. So she's fine. So now she complains again. This is in verse number thirteen. But how will you persist in, in mocking me and telling me lies? Tell me. Shimshon responds to her, Im sheva im you, Shimshon says, if you weave seven locks of my head into the web. Now over here, it's not true, but he's getting closer to the truth. It's about my hair, he says. 
Now, if you weave it a certain way, then I lose my strength. Of course, she does that, exactly that. And she says, Philistines upon you. And he's able to, of course, to pull out the peg and the, the loom, the weaving instrument, etc. So again, and now she says, Vatomer Elav, in verse 15, you say you love me. But you're not with me. You don't confide in me. For three times you have uh, mocked me and you haven't told me the source of your great strength. Uh, there is throughout the Bible, by the way, a theme of three plus one, three and four. Yair Zakovich, an academic in Israel, wrote his thesis on three and four in the Bible. And here we have three plus one, three and four. Three generations of suffering, the fourth generation shall return to the land. So she says, listen, you claim to love me, you haven't told me, etc." He doesn't tell her right away. He still wrestles with this. And the next verse is very striking, very poignant, very, very tragic. She's nagging and pressing him constantly. He is weary to death. He can't go on anymore like this. So finally, 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 he tells her the truth. He, he reveals to her what is his innermost secret. I'm a Nazarite, he says, my mother's womb, and she understands this is the truth. And of course, that's what's going to happen. So once again, and this time she tells the Philistines in the next verse, he told me the truth. So they come with the money this time. They just got out. If they bring the money, it's all about the money. Um, they bring the money with him. And she, next verse is very striking. She puts him to sleep like a baby. So they cut his hair. So his strength slips away. And um, the question one can raise over here, I mean, I've already suggested what I believe, but I'll mention it again. Why does Shimshon lose his strength? My, what, the way I read it, one can read it otherwise, but the way I read it, it's not actually about cutting the hair. I mean, the cutting of the hair is symbolic. Cutting of the hair means that you are not keeping the vow. You're, 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 breaking, you're breaking the vow. In the Chumash, primarily the main way you break your vow is coming in contact with the dead. And you have to start all over again. But Shimshon is permitted to come in contact with the dead for whatever reason. So it's about the hair. He's not allowed to cut his hair. And once the hair is cut, one might say the Nazarite vow then becomes, let's say, suspended. But the claim that I'm making, and I think it's, it's not a bad reading, is that it's really not about that. It's about the other thing. It's about once you tell the secret, once you become truly intimate with, with, with the enemy, then you can't be intimate with God. And it's, it's the telling of the secret itself which causes Shimshon to, to lose his strength. And of course, you have this highly unscrupulous woman who's complaining always about her husband's lack of loving uh, him, her. And of course, all the time she's, and it's all about the money. So she hands him over to be, uh, once he's helpless, to be in the hands of the Philistines is never a good thing. Um, they are awful in the Bible, <clears throat> several occasions. And they're very into mocking and taunting also. Shimshon wakes up in verse number 20, he figures I'll get out of it again, but he did not know that God had left him. So Hashem may love. <laughs> Reminds me to some extent of another tragic figure of the Bible, which is King Saul. God had, God leaves Saul. Spirit of God leaves Saul, descends upon David and leaves Saul. So the Philistines take uh, Shimshon and they blind him. By and they bring him down to Aza. And they tie him up with the uh, shackle him with bronze fetters. He became a mill slave in prison. So Shimshon is not killed. He's a slave. And they want to um, 
to mock him. They want to mock Shimshon. Um, but now we have in verse 22, but after his hair was cut off, it began to grow back again. So his hair was growing back. And remember that uh, Shimshon's mother, the angel says he will be a Nazarite from birth. And his mother understood that to mean from birth until death. So in a certain sense, his hair starts to grow back, reminds us of the Chumash, where if the Nazarite has for uh, come in contact with the dead and the Nazarite vow has been broken, but you can start over again. So over here we have in the Shimshon story, the opportunity to start again. Um, let me just, how much time do we have here? What time is it now? Um, we have eight minutes. Okay. Let me just, uh, just for one moment, make a different point about Shimshon, which comes up later in the chapter as well. I mentioned that the story of Shimshon, which covers four chapters, can obviously be broken into, into, into two pieces. The first piece is the first three chapters, which ends with the verse, and he, he judged Israel for 20 years. And this, the second part, too, is chapters, our chapter, chapter 16, which also ends the same way. And he judged Israel for 20 years. What's interesting is not just he judged Israel for 20 years, um, but there's something else parallel by the end of the two chapters. Because the end of the previous chapter, after Samson has killed a thousand Philistines, and then we have at the end, the very end of chapter 15, verse number 18, after he's killed all these Philistines, throws away the jawbone, he became very thirsty. He cried out to God and said, You've enabled your servant to have this great redemption. But now I will die of thirst and I will fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. The Philistines are often called uncircumcised, not the topic for now. That's the very end of chapter 15. And God split open the hollow, which is at Lechi, and the water gushed out of it. And he was able to drink the water and live. That it was, that's why it is called the well of the one who called out, which is in Lechi, and this little story, which is the last story before the closing verse, he judged Israel for 20 years. You see something about Shimshon that we don't find any other place in the book of Judges, a person that prays to God. As I mentioned, Shimshon and God are very close. Shimshon is God's child. And Shimshon is the one who prays. There's a deep intimacy between Shimshon and God. Shimshon turns to God. You brought, you've enabled me to have this great redemption, this great victory, but now I'm going to die. And God, God splits open a hollow. And God, uh, the water pours out and, and revives Shimshon. So that's how the first part of the Shimshon narrative ends with a prayer. The end of the Shimshon, the first part one is a prayer. It was preceded by the great victory, followed by prayer. Now we get to chapter 16. Our chapter, Shimshon is, is, in, is in the jail in, in, in Gaza, who lined it. And the Philistines, as is their want, are going to want to bring him out to mock him, to make him, uh, to make him play the crown amongst the huge throng of people who have come to some kind of religious service of their god, Dagon, which Shimshon does. And afterwards, at the end of chapter 16, Shimshon again in chapter 16, in verse number 28, and Shimshon called out to God and said, Hashem Elohim, O Lord God, God, just remember me, strengthen me one last time. So I shall be able to uh, take revenge of the Philistines. Here they translate, if only for one of, for one of my two eyes. Okay. In other words, you have the end of the, 
part one of the Shimshon narrative, Vayikra Hashem, and you have part two of the Shimshon narrative, Vayikra Hashem. In each case, God is responding to Shimshon. In the first, after the victory, so he doesn't die of thirst. In the second case, he's about to tear down the, uh, the house of idolatry of Dagon, killing the Philistines and himself. But in each of these cases, we have Shimshon as one who prays, which in the rest of this whole book, it, it doesn't exist. And this reinforces the point I'm making about Shimshon, about his connectedness to God. I don't get a sense, there is a sense in terms of Shimshon, no doubt, that in betraying the intimacy, he loses his strength. I mean, it's, it's a tragedy because he's in a very difficult situation. But I don't believe when you read the story of Shimshon, apart from that moment of where he gives into Delilah, and the text is somewhat sympathetic to him as well. Um, apart from that, I don't get a sense ever in the Shimshon story that the book of Judges condemns him. I don't see that at all, personally. I think he has a task, difficult task. One might say a tragic task. But fundamentally, as long as he stays on task, he's totally fine. The use of these various Philistine women and all that, that's... That's just part of his job. Now, when we get to the Mishnah later on, hopefully after Pesach or whatever, we'll see that the Mishnah has a very different view of Shimshon, and we'll talk about that. The Mishnah thinks he's problematic. But I think in the plain reading of the text, I don't see it at all. In any event, I want to point out the parallels between the two different parts of the Shimshon story. They're quite parallel, not just the 20 years, but the prayer. Okay, let me stop here for a minute. I'll, I'll just finish this up next time with a few more details about Shimshon. But if anybody has comments or questions now, please speak up. Um, David? Yes. Maybe, I, uh, I thought it was interesting that he's put in the grave of Manoach. Manoach never seemed to catch on to when his wife was pregnant or when he was, I just thought interesting that he was, you know, the grave that uh, in death, he sort of got it, that he was connected to his father, while in life, they were never on the same page. Oh, for sure. Um, Manoach represents, I mean, the claim that I made, Manoach represents Israel. He's not really very understanding, intuitive, and God avoids him, basically. God speaks to Mrs. Manoach. God doesn't even bother right. with Manoach. But at the end right. of the day, he represents, he represents the, 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 the communities represented by the husband. So at the end, he's, he's reuniting with Israel after his death. That's the point. He had a mission. He fulfilled the mission. He dies fulfilling the mission. And after his death, he then can reconnect to Israel. So he is part of Israel, which is also the way it ends. By Israel, At the end of the day, he did fight Israel's enemies. Right. Now, the Israelites don't care about that, at least as recorded in the story. But at the end of the day, de facto, that's what he's done. So at the end of his life, he's actually reunited with, 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 with Israel, takes the form of the father's grave. Oh, no. connected to Israel that way. His whole um, life, he doesn't live with Israel. He lives in the Philistines this whole time. Um, this, the, yeah, the second thing was Lidalel is to dilute in Hebrew, in modern Hebrew. Right, but it has to be, it comes, it's coming from the same place, I think. It's to weaken something. Today, if somebody has a certain strength, right? You say somebody has right. a certain strength. And you dilute it, you dilute the strength. So it comes to the word Dao, but the word Dao is a poor person, right? I think the word Dao is basically to, 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 to uh, someone who's, who's, who's in a weak situation, who's not, not, not fully in control or weak, dilutes the same idea. You, 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 you lessen the strength. It's taking the so-and-so strength. Kiwi. When you dilute it, you-, you uh, It's okay. You reduce the strength of it. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, um, then um, the word so, atel came up with paro also. Yes, it does. Comes up with so, paro. Um, I think it also comes up, comes up one other place. With paro, I, I'll say paro, hatel, you have it. You might have it with Abimelech as well. I'm not remembering now. Um, comes up one other place in Sefer Breshit. I'm blocking on it right now. Yeah, it does. It means to mock, basically. It means to mock. And, um, right. Yeah. Anybody else? 
All right, then we'll stop at this point. We'll finish up with a few details next week, and then we'll move to Shmuel, who is also a kind of nausea, that's for sure. We have Shmuel, Avshalom, Yonadav, the three Nazirim, so-called Nazirim of the Bible, apart from Shimshon. And then we'll try to uh, summarize what we've seen. Hopefully I'll get a picture back over here. Yeah, Maxine, what do you want to say? Thank Sounds you. good. Thank you so much. Um, again, uh, as always, uh, Drisha has a lot of offerings this month. Um, later today, uh, there's a conversation on the Parsha. I believe that this week is uh, Rabbi Sarna and uh, Noah, uh, who's here with us today. Um, and then um, on Sunday, um, ahead of Purim, uh, Rabbi Silber and uh, and Dr. Sam Liebens uh, will be speaking, and uh, that's something I'm really looking forward to and uh, hoping to see some of you there. Thank you. Next week. Thanks.